Hello, my name is Will Roberts, uh, and this is an introductory lecture for Political Science 333 uh, on the history of Western political thought. One. So I want to just tell you a little bit about what the course is going to be about today. Um, not so much what it's going to be like, but what it's going to be about. Um, we're all getting used to COVID. We're trying to get used to uh, university life under COVID. So actually, I don't know what it's going to be like, um, <laughs> but I do know what it's going to be about. And so I want to say something about that very briefly today. Um, in this course, we are going to acquaint ourselves with the most important works of political theory from the ancient Mediterranean. Um, this, uh, what, what do I mean by the most important <laughs> works of political theory? Well, in some sense, I mean the ones that have come down to us as being important. That is, um, this is undeniably a, a sort of victor's history of the ancient world. Right. We know about ancient Greek political thought in large part because the Greeks, um, especially via um, Alexander the Great's Macedon, um, conquered large swaths of the Middle East, of Asia Minor, and even South Asia. And then, in turn, were conquered by the Romans, um, who had a conflicted relationship to Greece. Uh, they both, the Romans both fetishized uh, Greek rhetoric and philosophy and culture more generally, um, but they also enslaved the Greeks. Um, so it was, it was Greek slaves who taught um, the sons of noble Romans and a few of the daughters as well, um, the math, the science, uh, the literature of Greece. Um, and it was Roman senators who preserved the schools and libraries of Greece. I'll tell you a little bit more about that someday in the future. Um, after Roman emperors converted to Christianity, this newly created Greco-Roman tradition and its archive were integrated into the literature of the church. The Western part of the Roman Empire, uh, the parts centered in Rome itself, uh, fell to the Germanic tribes. But the church itself survived um, and spread, and this preserved many elements of the ancient tradition um, inside the Christian world. Meanwhile, the Eastern Empire, which was centered in Constantinople, was conquered by Islam. Um, that's why uh, Constantinople became Istanbul. Um, but Muslim scholars, uh, in turn, preserved the tradition of science and philosophy um, that they recovered from the Eastern Church. So when trade routes then expanded, uh, this is around 1000 CE and, therefore, and thereafter, um, that ancient literature, which had been preserved in the East, found a sort of pre-prepared audience uh, in the West. And this, the rediscovery of the Greco-Roman archive fostered the Renaissance in Italy, uh, fostered the ascendancy of early modern humanism and the scientific revolution. And those 
went hand in hand with a new era of conquest, a new era of empires, which spread this sort of retroactively constructed Western tradition around the globe. Hence uh, the official title of the class, History of Western Political Thought I. Um, that title is an anachronism, right? Um, it is uh, a retrospectively imposed label on uh, a group of thinkers who did not think of themselves as part of a Western tradition at all. Um, the ancient Mediterranean was not Western by any stretch. The Mediterranean was literally the sea in the middle of the world. That's what Mediterranean means. Uh, it was more navigable than the great oceans, but it was bounded by more and more diverse peoples than the Persian Gulf or than any of the other smaller seas. The European tribes of the north, the African civilizations of the south, and the great Asian kingdoms of the Near East all met and traded here, exchanging gods and technologies and stories. It was the middle of the world. The Hellenes, which is what the ancient Greeks called themselves, um, were scattered on islands and peninsulas of the eastern Mediterranean. And because of that, they were well-placed to dominate the sea trade um, and to spread communities around the rim of the sea. So by the middle of the 5th century BCE, Athens, in particular, had arisen to prominence um, both for its trading port, the Piraeus, which we're going to be reading quite a bit about, and for its naval might, which we're also going to be reading quite a bit about. It was um, a small city by modern standards. It was about 250,000 people living in uh, the height of classical Athens. Um, and such a small city could not raise a mighty fleet of warships unless the sailors on those ships had some share in the honor, the glory, the spoils of war. Hence, Athens was a democracy. It admitted poor peasants and artisans into citizenship which set it apart from many of the other cities um, in the Greek world and the Mediterranean world in general. Because the laws were made by the citizens um, and trials of lawbreakers were conducted before large juries of 501 citizens, the ability to speak persuasively to large groups became about the most important power one could possess as an individual. Right? It allowed you to influence public affairs. It allowed you to win acclaim and high office. And maybe most importantly, it allowed you to defend yourself against accusers, um, should anyone get jealous of you. Hence, teachers of rhetoric were in high demand in Athens, democratic Athens. Public debate spilled out of the assembly and the law courts, and written texts circulated widely. Therefore, Athens became very literate as a direct result of the fact that it was a democracy. And the production of texts expanded at a remarkable rate. Moreover, the flourishing trade and the freedom that Hellenes enjoyed to move and settle um, in other Greek cities led to levels of economic growth um, that would not be seen again for 16 to 1800 years. Um, which is pretty impressive. 
Uh, in fact, the main, the center of Greece would not see levels of uh, wealth um, that it saw in its classical era until the beginning of the 20th century. In these ways, in all of these ways, in the fact that Athens was a democracy, in the fact that it was highly literate, in the fact that it enjoyed um, rapid economic growth, um, in the fact that it expanded imperially throughout the neighboring world, Athens was the most modern city of the ancient world. Nonetheless, <laughs> as modern as uh, ancient Athens was in some ways, uh, Greek politics is still going to seem alien. It's going to seem strange um, as we read about it. And I'm going to try to emphasize some of that strangeness. Um, you know, as one marker of that strangeness, um, Athens was a slave society. It was, uh, and everyone that we're going to read um, took it for granted that uh, every society worth living in would be a society in which there were enslaved people doing uh, the work that was not fit for free people to do. So Greek politics is going to be strange. And the way I want to think about that, um, the combination of ancient of Athens' modernity and hence familiarity to us and its strangeness um, is to make a, a distinction between the, the framework within which politics happened uh, and was thought about in ancient Athens and the elements of that politics. So fundamental to the framework of modern political theory, um, and if you take uh, early modern political thought, you'll see this uh, very clearly, but you'll encounter it in lots of political science classes. Um, fundamental to the framework of modern political theory is the legal state, right? With, uh, which features impersonal rules, um, a, a claim to legitimate authority, and the consequent claim to legitimate monopoly on the use of coercion or force um, within a given territory. So the Greek city, uh, a Greek city like Athens, was not a state uh, in this regard. Right? It, uh, sometimes you will see, so the, the Greek word for city is polis, and oftentimes polis will be translated as city-state or state in modern editions of Greek thought. But the Greek city, the Greek polis, was not a state uh, in the modern sense. Um, and Greek political thought does not concern itself with the state, with the state's legitimacy, or with the state's policy, really. Um, politics in the Greek context is remarkably more personal. It's about group dynamics and cohesion. It's about interpersonal relations and personal standing. This sort of politics um, is familiar to us in the modern world, but not as the politics of the state per se. Um, this sort of politics is the politics of, of political parties like within the party, right? Uh, it's the politics of workplaces. You know, when people talk about office, office politics, this is what they're talking about. Um, it's the politics of families and friendship groups, right? Um, it's the politics of belonging and the politics of standing 
right? Of what sort of standing or status you have in a particular group of the affection that people feel for you or that you want them to feel for you. It's the politics of honor and it's the politics of exclusion, of dissing people and uh, cutting them out of your life. That's the sort of politics we're going to be talking about for the most part, but on a citywide scale. Um, some people will call this sort of Greek politics uh, the authentic or the original politics. Um, other people are going to call it, you know, lizard brain politics, right? To, to say that, it's, that there's something primitive about this sort of politics. Um, I'm not going to choose a side in that fight or, or I don't really think either of those sides is quite correct. But um, I want to say that it's, this is the framework within which politics is thought of um, and that, that that framework is going to seem a bit alien to us. Um, and um, it's within that framework that nonetheless all of the familiar elements of uh, Greece's um, modernity um, are going to be filtered. So that's it for this very sh brief introduction uh, to the class. Um, tell you a little bit about what it's about. Um, when I come back in the next episode, I will talk a little bit about uh, the Shield of Achilles um, and we'll get into a little bit more particulars about how Greek city-states or Greek cities um, operated.